to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 10, read through verse 16. Uh, The main verse we're wanting to see here is verse 14, but let's get some context. This is God's word. It says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now here it is. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Father, we thank you for this institution of the family. Lord, we could never understand how a husband and a wife and children are to relate to one another, the authority structures, the relational dynamics. We would understand none of it apart from your word. And so we thank you that this is your idea and that you've given us instruction on the family. And Lord, as we talk about children again, we want your words. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would teach us, you would give us clarity regarding our children. And Lord, then would you come and empower us to put these things into practice, to obey you, to raise our children in your ways, to honor and glorify you in and through our parenting. And so, Father, we pray these things all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we come to the third uh, and final week of this series on Baptist covenantalism and our children. Um, we have already handled some of the, the bigger theological issues. As you all know, we talked about the New Covenant the first week, then we looked at last week baptism, and really did kind of a, an argument against why we, uh, why we should only baptize believers and not uh, infants. And I, I know some of you all through this series, these last two weeks, you're scratching your head. Probably half of you uh, are going, this seems random. I don't get it. This whole series, I'm not really understanding why we're doing this. Uh, For the other half of you, uh, you're saying, finally, somebody is hitting this issue head on, and uh, and you understand the relevance of of some of this. So um, I think there's a divide in the church. This week, this third week, um, I I think for everybody, we'll all find this helpful. Uh, I'm not doing some sort of polemical study against pedo 
baptism or something. This is just some basic passages on what we believe about the family. Um, and so uh, maybe a, a way to, to frame this as we get started. Uh, many of you know, last year I wrote an article for, for Table Talk uh, with Ligonier, and, and it was titled, um, uh, Preparing Our Children for Babylon. And I got some questions after that article because of uh, two words I, I uh, snuck in there. It was a little bit provocative on purpose to get the questions raised and to get people thinking, but I called children of believers covenant children, and I'm a Baptist, and so uh, that's, that's provocative language, maybe confusing language for some, um, and I have no, uh, you know, my goal today is not to convince you to call your children covenant children, I could care less, um, but I, I say this to say, Muslims think this about us. Many other faiths would think this about us. They would not disconnect our children from us. They would say, that's a Christian family. They don't care about our little baptism distinctives and theological distinctives. Uh, if they go to persecute and kill Christian parents, they're not going to let the kids live. They're taking out the kids also because they know a real Christian family has passed that on to their children, and those children will keep Christianity going. And, and so uh, here's what I want to argue today. I want to argue something that I think Muslims get, many people get. I'm not sure Christians understand this as well as we should, so I want to argue this from Scripture. But here's my basic idea. Children born to Christian parents, or a parent, one, are set apart and different than children born to non-Christian parents. Let me say it again. Children born to Christian parents, or a parent, are set apart and different than children born to non-Christian parents. I say that uh, because of 1 Corinthians seven fourteen and some other passages we'll get into in a moment. But let's start with this passage. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, again, context matters here. That's why I read a little bit larger here. You can read it later. It's clearly about marriage. It's about marriages being unequally yoked. Um, but what it's not about is baptism. This often gets brought into baptism discussions. This passage has nothing to do with baptism, but it is making a very strong, powerful claim. Children with even one believing parent are holy. That's the word it uses, holy. And so we need to answer the question, what does it mean that they're holy? Holy. Because some have argued that holy here means saints, believers, which immediately raises some problems right here in the immediate context, uh, because if you believe that holy here means the children are holy, that is, saved saints, you now have to apply that same reading to the unbelieving spouse. Because it says what in verse 15, or 14? The unbelieving husband is made holy a saint, because of his wife, believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy or a saint because of her husband? Is that how we should read that? 
one, one person, one spouse gets saved and the other one's automatically saved? Is that what Paul's trying to say here? I, I don't think anybody takes that interpretation. So if we're going to read it that way about children, we have to read it that way about the unbelieving spouse. Here's the other problem, is the Greek word that Paul's actually using here for holy is hagia, which is never used or translated saint, but is always translated holy. That's significant. For example, Second uh, uh, Timothy 2.21, if anyone cleanses himself from what, is, uh, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Um, maybe some of y'all remember, uh, I think it was last year when we were studying John 17, and I did a sermon called... Uh, There's nothing common about us from Jesus' high priestly prayer when he talks about us not being of this world. And I said, there's nothing common about us. That's what he's saying. It's this idea of being set apart, different, distinct, not for common use. That's what the word holy often means in Scripture. That's why in the Old Testament you can have pots and pans and candlesticks that are called holy vessels. How would you call a pot or a pan or a candlestick holy? Is it morally pure? Is it sinless? Is it saved? The candlestick, the pot, the pan? No. It's set apart for holy use in the temple. Right? It's not for common use. It's not like other pots and pans and candlesticks. It's set apart for holy use, for God's use uh, in that, that priestly work. Uh, this is how we often see God being called holy in Scripture. When, it, when the Bible says God is holy, it doesn't mean He's morally pure. Although He is morally pure, it means He's set apart. He's not like creatures. He's not like angels. He's not like humans. He's different than us. He's not in a category like us. He's altogether different, a being that is altogether separate and set apart. That's what Paul's saying about children born to believers. They're set apart. They're not like children of pagan parents. They're different. They're different. So two Muslim parents who are raising their child to worship Allah as God or two unbelieving parents who are teaching their kids by all practical means there is no God, or they're their own God, some sort of secularism. Those kids are different than kids that are being taught about the real God in the context of the church, in the context of the teaching of the Word of God. He's saying these children are set apart. Uh, This type of upbringing is is so radically different than every other child on the earth, he can say that they're holy, they're set apart, they're not like all other kids. Not automatically saved, but radically different. And and look, guys, the verse just says they're holy. What are you going to do with that? It says that. We need to understand what that means. So, I've got four words I want us to look at today to unpack this. I don't alliterate often, so if you're taking notes, this is your week. Uh, You can actually write these down. Uh, They all start with P also, so that might be helpful. Uh, The first one is providence. You You can turn to these passages, but Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, and here's what I want to argue. 
that in God's providence, many, not all, but many children born to believers are elect. Many children born to believers are elect. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, it says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Not the parents' will, not the kids' will. According to His will, He predestines. We see it in uh, Romans 8, 29-30, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, uh, he glorified. Now, if, you don't, if, if you're uncomfortable with the word predestined, even though it's right there in the passages, um, some perf- might prefer Jesus' language in Matthew 22 where he says many are called, few are chosen. And so whether we use the word predestined, elect, chosen, um, my argument is not that all children born to believers are predestined, but that many of them are. Many of them are. Think about this, guys, from, from, from God's vantage point. You predestine, you predetermine that these people are going to be saved, this elect group, that only God knows who they are. You've predetermined this from before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 says. That's God the Father. Where do you put them? When you bring, they're going to be born into families. Which families do you predestine them to be born into? Do you predestine them to be born into the unreached people groups? Three billion people on this earth that will never hear, that don't ever hear the gospel? Are you going to put the elect in there? Well, not unless you're sending a preacher so they can hear. You're going to put them in the context of Christian homes where they will hear the gospel. Because what do we know about the elect? They will never enter into Christ. They will never enter into salvation without what? Hearing. How will they believe unless they hear? How are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And so God in in, in His providence puts many of His elect into Christian homes so they can hear the word of God in the church, in the home, and then be brought into the fold. And, you, and, and maybe somebody says, yeah, but that's, not all kids are elect in Christian homes. Yes, absolutely, that's what I'm saying. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 9, when he says this, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Both had the covenant sign at birth. Both are growing up in a covenant home. One is elect, one is not. And this is Paul's bigger argument. Verse 10, it says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, were, uh, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger before they're even born. The older shall serve the younger As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so before any of us become God's accuser, 
and say that's unjust for God to choose Jacob and not Esau. We should remember that neither Jacob nor Esau should be saved. They should be judged and condemned eternally because they're sinners. And the fact that God would even choose Jacob is an indescribable, incomprehensible amount of grace on God's part. And we should marvel that He would save anyone, not question His justice. Now, I know that there's some, maybe, maybe you hear this and you go, okay, well if God just elects who's going to be saved regarding our children, what's the point of parenting? I mean, in terms of helping toward their salvation or something, what's the point? And that may seem like a logical thing to say. It's not a biblical thing to say. Because the Scripture gives us this second principle. You can turn to Proverbs 22.6. And it tells us very clearly how we raise our kids matters. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say it leaves a permanent effect on them. God uses means. He uses means toward His predetermined ends. He promises to bless the diligent training of parents to affect the outcome of their children's lives. Now look, are there exceptions? Absolutely. There's parents that are negligent. Don't teach their kids well at all. And their kids get saved and they grow up and they're godly. And there's, kids that are very, or there's parents that are very godly and diligent and their kids reject it all and walk away from the Lord. We know those exceptions exist, but we call them exceptions. Because the normative pattern, the normal way this works, is that when you're diligent to, to put the gospel before your kids, the word of God before your kids, you train them diligently, the, norm, the normative pattern is, it leaves a lasting impact on them. What does Proverbs 22.6 say? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it I mean does that verse is it true or not train him up in the ways of the Lord when he's old he will not depart from it I like what one uh, Proverbs uh, scholar of Proverbs said he said Proverbs 22 6 is a truth but not a whole truth meaning it isn't true a hundred percent of the time there are exceptions there are kids who are raised right and for their own, because of their own heart bent on evil, they don't receive the teaching of their parents. They turn away. And that happens. We know there's those exceptions. Look, there's, I want to say this too, for whoever this may apply to, there's a lot of parents that inflict guilt upon yourselves because of this. You know, you look at, a, you look at one of your children that you're like, I, I taught them well, like I told them, and, and they've gone off in their, this other direction and you, you blame yourself. And I, I, I would just remind you of this. Yes, you could have done more. Yes, you could have been better. That's true of all of us. We all think we're better, godlier parents than we actually are. We all do. But God does not want us to live in guilt because He gives us so many biblical examples of how this works. So you've got Noah and his sons. Two of them are wise. One of them's foolish. You've got jo uh, Jacob is a godly father. Joseph stands out with his wisdom. The other ones are definitely question, 
questionable uh, how much wisdom and how much foolishness they, they're living in. The prodigal son runs away from his father. Is that his father's fault? No. There are negligent parents whose kids grow up and are godly. That happens. And, and let me be very clear. It's in spite of their parents, not because of them. Let us not use the exceptions uh, to justify negligence on our part. God loves to display the glory of His grace. He loves to take an example where there's been negligent parenting and then bring out awesome fruit from that to say, this is my work, not yours ultimately. That happens, but let it not justify negligence. But look at Proverbs 22.6. The general rule is God blesses those who diligently disciple their children. He does. We could go back into the Puritans. We could give all sorts of examples of those who, were, who really took parenting serious in terms of discipleship and the good fruit that came from that. We could go back to the Reformers and see these, these Reformers that changed the world, literally, they're classically trained. Is that irrelevant? I don't think so. We could, we could go into many of the modern problems with the church today and we could lay it at the feet of negligent parents and see a lot of bad fruit. I don't want to go into all that right now, but we know what we do as parents or don't do as parents matters. It does. It does. And I hope we'll lean into the principle, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That is a normative pattern. Trust it, parents. Number three. I want to put before us a promise. A promise. It's Ephesians 6. We'll actually be in Ephesians 6 the rest of the time. Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Let me say something and then I'll read it. I believe God gives a promise to children in this passage who obey Christian teaching from their parents. He gives a promise to children who obey Christian teaching, not just teaching, but Christian teaching uh, from their parents. Look at it, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment, there it is, with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So what is the promise? How can our children receive this promise? Make sure we see this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then he quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment. Why does he call it the first? It's the fifth. Well, it's the first of the second table of the law. All right, we have love the Lord your God. That's the first four commandments. And we've got the other six commandments. It's called the second table of the law. This commandment is the first of the second table. And so he says this is the first commandment with a promise. Now, what is the promise? It says long life in the land. Well, when that was given to Israel in the Ten Commandments, what did that mean? It was talking about Palestine, the Middle East, right? It was the the promised land that they uh, laid laid hold of and eventually went into. Um, But now this, Paul's quoting this to the Ephesians. He's quoting this in the New Covenant to Israel. Ephesian Christians, and he's saying, if children, if you obey your parents in the Lord, 
You can lay hold of this promise. Is, that, is he saying to our kids, uh, they have a plot of land in the Middle East in Palestine that they'll lay hold of if they obey their parents? Is that how we're supposed to read this? I don't think so. And I, I don't think so because of uh, Hebrews 11 verse 9 and what God says to Abraham. Let me read this for us. By faith, Abraham, and I'm, I'm, I'm pushing some verses together here. You can read it later. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise. He was looking forward to the city that's foundations, whose designer and builder was God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, and having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they desired a better country than the Middle East. That is, a heavenly one. Abraham... And the other Israelites were headed for the promised land. And Hebrews 11 says, but they weren't really headed for the promised land. They were, but they knew there's a real heavenly promised land. That's what they're journeying toward. That's what was really promised to Abraham and his descendants. A heavenly land. And I'm arguing that's what Paul's promising to our kids. A heavenly promised land. Contingent on what? How, did the, how do our kids get that promise of eternal life in heaven? What's it saying? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Now here's the, the verse that it begins to clue us in as to what he's saying here. Children, obey your parents. What's the phrase that comes right after that? In the Lord. In the Lord. It doesn't just say children obey your parents, period. It says children obey your parents in the Lord. How do you obey your parents in the Lord? Well, that's always shorthand for union with Christ. In the power of the Holy Spirit. By faith. By the Spirit, not the flesh. It's talking about Christian obedience. So obedience in the Lord is motivated by a fear of the Lord and a love for the Lord. So it's the, it's the child saying, God told me to obey my parents, and I trust God, and therefore I'll obey my parents. Obedience in the Lord is obedience that comes from a heart that genuinely wants to honor the Lord. Obedience in the Lord is vertically motivated, not just uh, horizontally motivated. Obedience in the Lord is... Uh, founded on the Word of God, not just the authority of their parents. It's Christian obedience, Spirit-enabled obedience. You say, obedience to what? Well, look at verse 4. It talks about fathers bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of what? Of the Lord. There's another phrase. You see in these phrases, in the Lord, children have to obey in the Lord, and then they're to obey teaching that's of the Lord. That's what's being connected to the promise. So this is not a generic gospelless instruction. You know, you can, go to, you can go to heaven, kids, if you just go to church every week and you give your tithe and you know, pray to Mary and, and, and do good things and you'll get into heaven. That's not connected to the promise of eternal life. What type of teaching from the parent is connected to eternal life? God made you. You've sinned against him. You need that sin forgiven by Christ. 
Repent of your sins. Trust only in Him. Live for His glory. Love your neighbors. Forgive your enemies. Right? Everything that Christ has commanded us. Couched in the context of the Gospel. That type of teaching from the parents, if the kids, by the power of the Holy Spirit, truly submit themselves to it and obey it, receive it by faith, they go to heaven. That promise is for them to live long in the land, that heavenly land, obeying the teaching that's of the Lord, doing it in the Lord. That's who the promise is given to. This is really what we talked about last week in Acts 2, 38, uh, when, when Peter stands up and preaches and he says, this promise is for you and your children. What's the promise? The Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sin. How do you get the promise? He says, repent and be baptized. Getting the promise of eternal life and salvation is contingent on our children's response. Really important. This is Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. He says, From childhood, Timothy, you were acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And and it's interesting, Spurgeon uh, talking about that passage... He said that childhood actually could be translated infancy. So, he's, so Paul's saying to Timothy, since infancy, Timothy, you've been hearing this from your grandmother when you go to church. You, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, with the gospel that's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What happened with the Apostle Paul? You know, nobody, I was thinking about that this week. Um, you know, Paul wasn't born into a Christian home. He was born into a Jewish home, uh, a, a faithful Jewish home as far as we know, but trained under the Pharisees. He's trained under the law. He's learning all about, uh, learning all about the Scriptures. And nobody, when, when Paul got saved, nobody could teach Jesus from the Old Testament better than Paul. But why was Paul so effective? at preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Because during his childhood, that foundation had been laid. So that later when Paul gets converted, the Holy Spirit can build off that foundation that was laid for him from the time of his youth. Guys, our kids are so spirit. Everybody loves to use the word privilege in our day. Our kids are spiritually privileged. Spiritually privileged. You realize three Three billion people in this world have no access to the gospel. They have never heard the gospel. Their kids will never hear the gospel. Most people in America have never heard the gospel. They know the name of Jesus. They may have heard that he died and and he's alive and Christians believe that. They don't know that there's wrath coming on them for their sins and that only Jesus can remove the wrath. They've never actually heard how the gospel works. But our kids sit under it every week. They hear it from you. They hear it in the services. They hear it in the city groups. How privileged to have that promise put before them every week that they can reject or receive. What a privilege. What an awesome, awesome privilege. So we've got providence, principle, promise. And then lastly, I want to point us to uh, a word that Paul is using. It's the word padea. Really important, it's in Ephesians 6, 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
And actually, we'll do a sermon on that, a full sermon on how fathers can provoke our children to anger. Uh, We'll do that in the coming months. But he says, bring them up in the discipline. That's the word padea. It it doesn't just mean spanking or something. It's much broader than that. Padea. And instruction. Nuthasia. That's where we get the word uh, nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. So fathers are to padea and nuthasia, their children, of the Lord. Curios. Now, I want to I just focus on this word padea, though, because, you know, it's laughable when you understand this word Paul's using. It's laughable to think that you've done your job as a parent with a five-minute devotion, even if you do that devotion every day, right? Or a 30-minute devotion, all right? This is not what is being taught here. This word padea is unbelievably rich and significant. It's dealing with the affections, the thinking, the viewpoints, the virtues, Uh, It's all about the molding and the formation of this child, the education of this child. Uh, If you had to put the word padea into one word, we might use the word enculturation. If we had to put the word padea into two words, it would be enculturation and indoctrination. So a holistic submersion of this child with a biblical worldview. So Deuteronomy 6.4 gets at this when it says, you shall teach them, that is uh, the scriptures, to your, diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's saying uh, all through the day. Not just a little segmented Bible study time or uh, my kids go to a Christian school and they have a Bible time, you know, for, for an hour they learn some scripture. No, this is to permeate their life, their thinking, their affections, how they view the world, what they laugh at, what they don't laugh at, what they find valuable or not valuable, how they prioritize things, their character, all of these things. It gets into their epistemology Uh, how they think. It gets into the anthropology, how they view humanity. It gets into theology, how they think about the Bible. Padea is this all-consuming reality in which we're to enculturate our children into. Um, Let me me try to illustrate this. So uh, some of y'all know that for a number of years, our church was in an inner city area, and we were trying to do a lot of ministry in this area. Um, there was a young man there that many of us knew. Uh, we had been ministering to him and knew him for a long time since he was pretty young. And he had grown up uh, in relationship with a lot of us. I, I lost contact with him for about a four-year span there. Right? I hadn't seen him. But he was running the streets uh, for those four years. He was being padeaed by that culture. And I met him uh, after that four-year span he was unrecognizable. I couldn't understand what he was saying, the terminology, the way, like, it, so much of that culture had, he had been affected by, he wasn't even the same person. That's padea. That's padea. When, when someone is so influenced and enculturated in a culture, they become like that culture, that's padea. So the question isn't whether our children will receive padea. They will. The question is, who does that to them? Which culture affects them? Which set of values do they begin to embrace? That's what we have to ask ourselves 
And this is one of the things that Priscilla and I tell young parents. I think this is really important. We'll talk about this more in coming weeks. Um, is the need for consistency, for especially for young children. W- what I mean by that um, is not a type of perfection. None of us can provide that for our children, uh, but we can provide contexts where there's not confusion. So uh, what they're hearing or experiencing in the home should match what they're hearing and experiencing in the church. And what they're hearing and experiencing in the church and in the home, if you put them in a school, it should match what they're hearing and experiencing in the school. And when the home and the church and the school are running on all three cylinders, there's unity across the board. That is a powerful padea for the formation of your child. They don't know anything else but what those cultures are instilling in them. It doesn't mean they're automatically going to be saved. We're not saying anything like that. But we're saying the padea that we're being instructed to do here for our kids is powerfully being accomplished uh, when we can create, create as much consistency as possible for our kids. Now, I want to back up and deal with a, a quick argument here that some uh, have against us as Baptists. I don't know if any of you have heard this. If you haven't, maybe you will in the future and you can remember what I'm about to say. Uh, But some people would say, because you don't baptize your baby as an infant, you don't believe your children are in the covenant. And therefore, how do you teach them to pray? How do you teach them to sing? You know, Christ isn't their Lord, you're saying that. So how do you teach, why do you teach them to sing to the Lord? To pray to the Lord? Why why would you do this if your children aren't in the covenant? This is a big kind of argument that's given to us as Baptists. And here would be my answer. You could say a few things, but this would be the first thing I would probably say. Um, I would be in sin not to. Because they were created to worship God. They were created to pray and rely upon God. They were created to sing to Him. That's not something you just do after you've been baptized. That's why people are going to be condemned on the day of judgment because they didn't do those things. They didn't believe on the Lord. They didn't worship Him. What what else are we going to teach our kids? To worship Allah? We're going to teach them like the world that there is no God, they're their own God, do whatever you want to do? There's no accountability for your... I mean, what, what do we teach them if we don't teach them to worship the God? To pray to the only God. To sing to Him. To submit to Him. To read His Word. To repent and confess sin. To believe His Gospel. I mean, I don't know what I say to my kids if I don't say that to them. I can't give them any type of Christian instruction. Now, let me say something to the men here. uh, Those of us who are fathers. Um, Paul who's inspired by the Spirit here, he could have said parents, right? If the Spirit had him say that, he would have said parents. What does he say? Fathers. And so I don't want to make this command genderless or generic. It's given to fathers. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, padea your children. That's on you, brothers. That's on me. We need to feel the weight of that. 
That doesn't mean our wives don't teach our children. There's verses that talk about women teaching their children. It's just right here. This is laid only on us. And we need to highlight that. And, you know, it was, it was awesome. Uh, one of the brothers in Citigroup uh, this past Wednesday was talking about when he steps up to the plate and really intentionally leads his family, he immediately sees how it affects the kids. It's immediately noticeable. And I think that's true with every household in this church. It's immediately noticeable when a father assumes this responsibility and steps into it intentionally. I'm going to bring up something. I said this a few uh, weeks ago. I gave some statistics on a father's influence in the home, a spiritual influence. Uh, Listen to this. If a father doesn't go to church, even if the wife does, doesn't go to church, one child in 50 will become regular worshipers. If a father does go regularly, regardless whether the mother does, two-thirds or three-fourths of those children will as adults. Another study, uh, if you include like a, a city group in our context to the, to the Sunday gathering, so the man is going to both of these things, um, 72% of children w- will also when they grow up. If only the father attends an extra Bible study in the week, 55% of the children will attend. When only the mother attends, 15%. Only the mother, 15%. If neither parent does, 6%. Here's another stat, another survey that was done. A child's, uh, if a child is the first in the household to become a Christian there's a 3.5% probability that everybody in the household will follow if the child's the first. If the mother's the first to become a Christian, there's a 17% probability that everyone in the household will follow. But if the father is the first one to be converted and become a Christian, there's a 93% probability the rest of the house will follow. Hence, my argument from last week about the household baptisms with the father. Um... But that's, we're not going to get into that. Uh, now, someone may say, especially in our day, that's patriarchy. Is that what you're teaching? And I would just say, I would lean in, I would say, yes, the very best kind. The very best kind. The very biblical kind. The kind that, like on Wednesday, uh, five of us fathers are sitting in my office after Citigroup Praying, God, help us lead our families better. Help us to love our wives. Help us to lead and raise our children. That type of patriarchy that feels the weight and responsibility of words like padea that lands on us. You know, that type of leadership in the home where where we get that we're going to be accountable to the Lord for how we treat His Word regarding our kids. And guys, this is just... I feel honestly, I, I, I hope this isn't, isn't landing as some sort of rebuke. I feel honestly privileged to pastor a church and to live my life with other men who share that vision. A, a lot of men that share that vision in this church. And think of what type of culture we're creating where men assume that place of leadership in their homes And that's the vision of the home. The wife's on board, the kids are on board, and then someone from the outside of our church comes in. How how countercultural is that? You know, uh, that's a very different thing than, than what 
we see in the world. Bruce Watke says that we can leave a permanent mark on our children. So let me, let me try to close this out um, and broaden this just a little bit. I really hope all of us will have a multi-generational vision for our families. What do I mean by multi-generational? Psalm 78 says, What our fathers have told us, we will not hide from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn might arise and tell them to their children so that they may set their hope in God. Brothers, you're not just teaching your kids to teach your kids so your kids will walk with the Lord, but so that your grandkids and your great-grandkids will follow the Lord. And so that God will even raise up out of our church missionaries to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That we could have a massive impact in the world because we started with our kids and discipled them and created a padea, a whole culture in which they're so exposed to Christ that they begin to see His attractiveness, the desirability of Christ, the need for Christ. And then they would submit fully to Him and live for Him the rest of their lives. That's what we want. That's what we've been called to do, church. Um, Our children are blessed as we pursue these things imperfectly. Amen? Let's encourage each other in these things, church. Let's go to the Lord and pray for His help. Father, who is competent for these things? Lord, every man in this room knows our failures. We know we can remind ourselves. We don't even need the enemy to remind us. But Lord, we also know that Your Holy Spirit is a powerful force to change us as men and help us become something that we're not. To grow us in the things that we have begun but have not gotten as good at as we would like. Lord, we pray for unity in our homes regarding what Your Word says. We pray, Father, for the hearts of our children that they would love Your words. That they would love Your wisdom. That they would want to walk in it and live by it. That they would see it is life to follow the Lord. And there is no life outside of Christ. Lord, convince us all of these realities. And we pray You would do it all for the sake of Your Son. We pray this in His name. Amen.